lo and behold, it turned out my advisor was Henry Kissinger. Uh, Neustadt became one of my mentors. So another period of good fortune for me. China is the society that will, if they're successful, but they're going to be the first big society ever to eliminate abject poverty. And so, so often I'll have someone in Washington say, I don't like the fact that China does this. And I'll say often, I agree with you. Okay, so now what are you going to do about it? The biggest and most important shared interest between the U.S. and China is in not letting some third party's action or incident or accident drag us to a catastrophe beyond belief. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas from some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, the chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Graham Allison, the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at the Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Graham was a founding dean of Harvard's Kennedy School and until 2017 served as director of its Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Graham has served as special advisor to the Secretary of Defense under President Reagan and as assistant Secretary of Defense in the first Clinton administration. His latest book, which he wrote in 2000 or published in 2017 with a provocative title, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape the Thucydides Trap? More on that later, but for now, Graham, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Hank. Uh, when you in invited me, I said, I accept with enthusiasm. Uh, you're one of my heroes. I think the work that you and Wan Kishan did in the joint stimulus in 2008, prevented the Great Recession becoming another Great Depression with all the consequences that could have meant. So I would say that's a great accomplishment. And I think your effort to try to understand how we can do similar things rather than getting dragged in either the coronavirus crisis or God help us, the next one that's worse, into a place where we don't want to go is an inspiration. So in any case, happy to be here. Well, Graham, let me tell you, this is a mutual admiration society then because it's really my privilege to speak with you. You're one of the world's foremost political scientists and I view you as not just a big thinker, but a big doer because your work is grounded in finding practical solutions to some of the biggest uh, daunting challenges we have in the world today. You know, you did your groundbreaking work back in the 70s in the Cold War about government decision-making, particularly crisis decision-making. But as you noted, you and I uh, work together today on, on China relations, and that's where we're gonna be focused. But I want to start and go back to the young Graham Allison. Now, I didn't know you when you, when you, when you were young. I, I, I take a look at your resume and I see after you graduated from 
from, from Harvard, you were a Marshall Scholar, spent a couple years at Oxford, and I, I know the Marshall Scholarship Program is even more selective than the Rhodes, and so you had a, a very distinguished academic career, but when did you know you wanted to be a political scientist? What were you thinking about in grade school or in high school? Talk a little bit about the earliest days. Well, certainly I did not know that I wanted to be a political scientist. Uh, my odyssey has been one that's full of great good fortune and grace at virtually every stage and uh, surprises. So I was born in North Carolina, grew up in what at the time was a middle-sized town called Charlotte, now a big city. Went to high school there, uh, then had the good fortune to go to Harvard. But what was a culture shock for me, I came with a very heavy Southern accent and I can remember co-ed saying, oh, that's so nice, just talk some more. So uh, uh, then I went off to England for two years. That's probably the most intellectually exciting period of my life where I was introduced to analytic philosophy which is the topic I was interested in at the time and almost uh, uh, decided to stay and do analytic philosophy. But I have always had a practical bit at the same time. And uh, the question of whether you're having any dent on the world uh, to try to make it a little bit better, or as one of my friends says, to turn the screw at least a little bit in the right direction of history. When I came back to I didn't know whether I would go to business school or law school or graduate school and class. But finally, I decided there was a department at Harvard called the government department, political science, but where there were people like Henry Kissinger and uh, Dick Neustadt, the great presidential scholar, and uh, Sam Huntington and others who were both thinking about real problems in the world analytically, but also about what to do about them. And so I came back to uh, the political science department. Lo and behold, it turned out my advisor was Henry Kissinger. Uh, Neustadt became one of my mentors. So another period of good fortune for me. And uh, if we're looking for a bright thread along this storyline, uh, I would say it's been the concern about war and especially catastrophic war. So just one more word. Uh, I uh, arrived at Oxford in the fall of 1962 as a new young Marshall Scholar. I'd never been out of the country before. We got on the Queen Elizabeth, we got off in England, the whole thing was, you know, extraordinary. And, uh, and then about three weeks later, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And from the perspective of the UK, it was sort of caught in the middle of this. And somehow, these crazy Soviets and crazy Americans were about to blow up the world. And we were all gonna be killed. And it seemed very plausible. In fact, John Kennedy thought there was a one in three chance that the missile crisis would end in a nuclear war. So I, I mean, I contemplated the idea that this life was over, okay? When you're such a young person, seemed like a bummer. Uh, so I became fascinated by that topic, actually the Cuban Missile Crisis was the topic of my first book. Uh, and uh, when it's a combination of trying to understand how crisis decisions were made and avoid, a war avoided, but also the most dangerous 
uh, episode that we've seen historically. So that's, I think, the storyline that ends with China and the U.S. today. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating for me to hear that because so often I will talk with young people and often they think they need to be a career engineer to know right away what they want to do. Yeah. And I'm always suspicious of career engineers. When I was uh, running Goldman Sachs and people came out of their womb knowing they wanted to be an investment banker, you know, I just didn't, didn't some people know from the get-go, but I was an English major. I didn't know what an investment banker was. You know, I, there was a whole lot of accidents in my career and one thing led to another. And, and uh, but I didn't even like economics courses when I took them at Dartmouth. I was an English major, so any of it. it, it but, but, so, so I think I remember you were a football player too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I, I do like football and I've got the Harvard Dartmouth game ball in, in, in my office here for the, where, where we beat, uh, where we beat Harvard. But in any event, let's get to China. So why are U.S.-China relations so vitally important for all of us? How do we make the case for everyday Americans who aren't focused on geopolitics and foreign affairs that this is critically important, that this really matters? Well, maybe three points briefly. So first and most important, I can't remember who it was that said, uh, you may not be interested in war, but war may be interested in you. There is a real chance that the relationship between the US and China that is currently deteriorating at the most rapid rate I've seen any relationship deteriorate in recent history uh, could end in a real bloody war in which thousands and millions of people would be killed. So it may not seem interesting, but it could be decisive for survival. That's number one. Number two, uh, China is one-fifth of humanity. So one of every five people are Chinese. Uh, China is a great culture and society. China has, over the past 40 years, uh, risen meteorically, further and faster than any country ever in history. So the transformation that's going on in China that's uh, both a wonder. So China is the society that will, if they're successful, the coronavirus may set them back a year, but they're gonna be the first big society ever to eliminate abject poverty. So that's below $2 a day, the World Bank, to, to zero. Uh, so the whole thing, China is a phenomenon in that respect. And anybody that's not interested in the most dynamic society in the world that has one in five citizens in the world is missing something. Third and finally, China's emerged, most people don't get it, but China's emerged so fast. In fact, Vaclav Havel, I quote in my book, uh, uh, paraphrase, he says, things have happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. Now I would say China has emerged as an economy, a national economy, that is now bigger than the US. If measured by the yardstick that both CIA and IMF think is the best metric for comparing national economies. China's GDP is bigger than the US today. China has emerged as the number one trading partner 
of everybody. We're, we're, we're our face masks and protective equipment for people today trying to deal with coronavirus coming from. We're the number one supplier to the US. China, the number one supplier of ingredients for drugs. China. So basically, as an economy, China has now emerged as one of the backbones of the global economy. And again, that may not seem interesting to people in the sense that it's far away, but if that's where they get their face masks, that's probably interesting. Yes. So Graham, that's a great way to start our discussion. And now I'm gonna to go to where you started, where you said that you have never witnessed a relationship heading south so fast, you know, this downward spiral of the US-China relationship in, in a very dangerous way. And if, if you, you look at Washington right now, there's nothing else that unites Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill, <laughs> like the, the anti-China settlement sentiment. Exactly. So talk a bit about what's driving this and to what extent it was predictable and you know it, inevitable a and to what extent it is a function of uh, of leadership you know we, we have a situation where xi jinping the general secretary of the communist party and the president of china where he's amassed power I I quicker than at least anybody i i, I have seen and he's been very unconventional very assertive He's turned the clock back. He's governing through the party, primarily as opposed to the state. You know, as I said, assertive inside and outside of China. So talk a little bit about how we got where we are now, and then we can talk some about the way forward. So. Well, again, a, a big, big question. And if anybody knew the answer, you know, that would be uh, fantastic. And apologies if I, be a little professorial here, but I would still put it in at least three layers. There's no question, I agree 100%, that the thing about which Republicans and Democrats agree most today is that China is the problem, to blame China. So you cannot make any anti-Chinese claim today that's not credible. I mean, I could make up seven completely you know, nonsensical things I'm not gonna do it because I don't want those to come. Oh, Graham said this could have happened or that could have happened. And you'll, it'll immediately go viral and soon it'll be on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post. So what's happening here? The reason why this was predictable and inevitable at the first layer is structural as explained to us by Thucydides 2,500 years ago. That's what I wrote my book about. Basically, Thucydides said, when a rising power, he was writing about Athens, uh, rises rapidly and threatens to displace a ruling power, he was talking about Sparta, which had been the dominant power in Greece for a hundred years, alarm bells should sound, extreme danger ahead, high likelihood of war, even catastrophic war that neither of the parties want, because they're both extremely vulnerable to third party actions or provocations or even just events, incidents, accidents that can drag them into a war nobody wants. Think about 1914 
and the assassination of an archduke that within five weeks had consumed all of Europe in a war that became World War I. So at the first level, a structural reality, China, as it realizes the China dream, really is seriously threatening to displace the U.S. or encroach on prerogatives and positions the U.S. has been, become accustomed to after 100 years of an American century. So that's just baked into the situation. And that's the core diagnosis in my book. Now, there's a second level of this, which is the serial or uh, awakening uh, to this fact by Americans. And uh, most Americans didn't even watch. I mean, you've been watching China and interested in China for a long time. I see people every day in Washington, or I mean, in Zoom in Washington now, but or in the last several years, who wake up and say, wait a minute, where the hell did these people come from? Who do they think they are? How did they become Germany's number one trading partner? Nobody told me. How did they become the biggest producer of automobiles in the world? We think automobiles, we invented automobiles. Motown is Detroit. How could they be the biggest producer of automobiles? Why are they sending masks to other people? That's our job. We always have traditionally been the source of help for other nations in need, but China's usurping our So wherever China is doing something, when you awake to it and see it in your face and in your space, people are shocked and even threatened. So I would say that's a second uh, layer of what's going on. Thirdly, uh, uh, yes, your point is certainly right that Xi Jinping and his team are an extraordinary uh, group of, of characters whom you know well and I've gotten to know uh, some. Uh, they have a different idea than our idea about how to govern a country. They do not think that a democratic system, at least in their uh, environment, will work. They concluded that Gorbachev's experiment in democracy or in loosening up was actually the cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they are determined to make a party-led system, a party-led autocracy, political scientists would call it, who guides everything, uh, govern China successfully and to demonstrate that that's possible. Well, that idea is offensive to many, many Americans, and especially ones who imagined that China, like everybody else, was gonna follow in the footsteps of the US to become a democratic country. And many people invested heavily in the notion that if we engaged with China and they developed a market economy, in fact, many people in the post-Cold War era, so after the collapse of the Soviet Union, bought into the what now we see was an illusion about the so-called end of history. So the most prominent thesis in 1991, two, three, four in the country was the thesis of Frank Fukuyama that said the ideological battle about how to organize an economy and how to organize a government is over, finished. Democracies and market economies have won and hereafter, everybody's going to evolve to become a market economy and a democracy like ours. In fact, 
you can't go back and read. The leading columnist was Tom Friedman, still is. He wrote the Golden Arches Theory of Peace, which said that two countries that have McDonald's Golden Arches can't go to war with each other because citizens will be standing in line with looking for hamburgers, not willing to fight. So you read this and you think, nobody believed that. The answer is no. Lots of people bought into this hope or aspiration. So they blamed Xi and his team for crashing their party or their expectations. I would say those expectations were historically unrealistic. So I would put the balance uh, partly on their activity, but equally on what the, the set of expectations. And finally, we're now in the nastiest political campaign any of us have seen in our lifetime, where the Trump team is fighting for his survival uh, and the Biden campaign sees Trump as a threat to America's democracy. And in that, unfortunately, China has become a football uh, that both of them are maybe better a soccer ball that both of them are determined to kick and each determined to show that he's not softer on China than the other. So it's multi-layered, uh, but I think that unfortunately, certainly between here and the election, it's gonna get worse before it gets worse. Yeah, sir, Graham, uh, interesting explanation. Now, you and I both believe that even though war is a possibility, we, we, we should seek to, to avoid uh, for sure that there's a much more likely uh, risk this devolves into a de debilitating conflict which makes the world a very foreboding, difficult, dangerous, dangerous place. And you know, you you cut your teeth as a political scientist during the Cold War, right? And sure. and here, this is not the traditional Cold War because, as you pointed out, China is a leading uh, manufacturer in the world, the leading uh, trading uh, trader, the uh, the leading a producer of all sorts of infrastructure that, you know, there's pressure right now in Washington to, to decouple uh, from the Chinese economy. And, you know, there, originally the hope among some people was that economic linkages, and I still think economic linkages can help mitigate security conflict, but what's happened is the security has bled over in, in, into the economic side and so now there's there's a real focus to say how do we how do we decouple from china so talk a bit about that and what the world could look like if if we you know if this thing keeps spinning out of control we don't find a stable sustainable place here uh we avoid war but we have a hard time you know, having a, a stable world where there is a global order that, that works. Uh, well, again, a great, uh, great issue, and you and I both have been wrestling with it. So let me start with one quick aside about war. So if there were a real full-scale war between the U.S. and China, I mean, nobody wants to think about this, and everybody knows it 
would be insane if they think about it. It could actually kill almost all Americans and almost all Chinese. I mean, we have now each a superpower nuclear arsenal, which ultimately, if ultimately used. So that's the topic I've worked on for most of my whole life. And while it seems so unthinkable, uh, World War I was unthinkable until it happened. Uh, there was a one in three chance we would have ended up in a nuclear war in 1962 when Kennedy confronted Khrushchev. So there's a genuine risk of a, of a genuinely catastrophic. I mean, not just bad, but bad beyond, beyond history. Fortunately, everybody sensible in Washington knows that. Nobody wants war with China. And everybody sensible in Beijing knows that. Nobody in Beijing. Nobody in the PLA wants war with the US. But again, the reality, especially in a Thucydidean dynamic is, you don't need to want war for war to happen. So in the current situation, if Taiwan, watching what's happening in Hong Kong, were to make a dramatic move towards independence, I think there's a serious chance, serious chance, that Xi Jinping would decide we have to solve this problem now and solve it violently. And they have certainly options for doing that. I described them in a recent paper that I wrote, uh, published in the National Interest. And if they did that, American president would face very hard choice about whether to try to come to Taiwan's defense. So I don't, that's, a, that's an aside, but I would say that's a kind of a foundational point in which the biggest and most important shared interest between the U.S. and China is in not letting some third party's action or incident or accident drag us to a catastrophe beyond belief that would destroy every part of every dream of every person. And I think that's a big, big, big point. Now, there's a second related point that you know better than I do. In 2008, if you had done nothing and China had done nothing, and you all had not found a coordinated way for us to stimulate our economy beyond anything anybody had ever seen historically, and China to do equally. Maybe you've said sometimes, maybe even more. We You all prevented a Great Depression. Most people don't remember, but the last Great Depression ended up creating the environment in which communism and fascism surged. Hitler came to power. We had World War II. So a Great Depression in a world with a financial, the degree of financial interactions we have today would be potentially a catastrophic. It could even lead to a catastrophic war. So again, US and China, whatever else our differences, have a very important shared interest there. Climate, another one of the topics you've been a leader in and that I'm totally subscribed on this proposition. Everybody but, it, but one, as far as I know, who thinks about this agrees that we live in a, a contained biosphere in which anybody who emits greenhouse gases emits them into the biosphere that we all share. So either the US or China can even by itself 
ruin the biosphere for all of us. So unless we find a way for the two greatest emitters to work together to prevent or disrupting the whole biosphere, again, we can't have an environment in which we can successfully live. So Scott Fitzgerald had one of these great lines that said that the test of a first-class mind is to be able to hold two contradictory ideas in one's head at the same time and still function. So I think that's a good injunction. The one idea is China is going to be our ruthless rival because China really does want to realize China's dream. And China's dream is, as Xi Jinping has said, to make China great again. He calls it the great rejuvenation of the great Chinese people. And that was his banner before it was Trump's. So if China becomes great again and meets the, the goals that he's laid out for 2025, 2030, 2049, the 100th anniversary, uh, China will have a GDP twice the size of ours, maybe more. I mean, why, as Chinese ask, I'm sure they, they've asked you, they say, why should individually we be only a quarter as wealthy as you? I mean, we're smart and we work hard. Why shouldn't we be at least half as, half as productive? Well, if they're, if they're half as productive, given that they have four times as many people, they'll have twice the GDP. But from an American perspective, I don't like that. So what about that? If China is successful in pursuing, pursuing uh, dominance in the frontier technologies like AI, they'll be the leader, not us. But I want us to be the leader. If China is successful with 5G, they'll be the leader. But it should be us. I like for Americans to be the leader. So the rivalry is baked in to the situation. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, the other contradictory idea is that I can't avoid being dragged onto the war all by myself. I can't avoid a climate in which I can't live all by myself. I can't even deal with coronavirus all by myself as a pandemic doesn't respect borders. So we have deep and inescapable shared interests with China. Now, how can you, on the one hand, have shared interests that you can't escape, and on the other hand, be a fierce rival? The answer is, that's complicated. Uh, so I, I've written about this, I mean, I've been searching ever since I sent this book to the publisher for how to escape Thucydides' trap, that basically the idea. And the two best ideas I have is the JFK idea of accepting the fact that we're going to live in a world safe for diversity. And then this very unusual Chinese idea of rivalry partnership. Well, I tell you, Graham, you are a terrific thinker. I will just interject a couple of my thoughts Please. and get you to respond. So I believe that China has not developed a better form of capitalism. I think we can remain the leading economy. We may not be the biggest, but the leading economy for some time. And I believe our foreign policy strength, our military strength, diplomatic strength 
is is going to really derive from our for, from our economic success. And so, the the key, to, in many ways, to, to to America's future is going to be not what happens in China, but what we do here, and our economic leadership abroad. And as I look, and I know you and I have talked about this, and and agree as I look at it, it's, you know, there, there's going to be some decoupling, you know, we should decouple with some of the most sensitive technologies that are critical to our national security. Of course, we need to do that and protect our national security. And we're going to have to decouple, you know, in, in, in the healthcare area, because there are certain products we need to make here. But if we go too far, and we try to go too far in decoupling when the rest of the world is not going to decouple from China. Right. No one, I see you agree, no one else is going to, to look to economically decouple. We'll isolate ourselves. So as we look to compete, I think we need to be very careful about how we compete. You, you also see it in the universities. The universities have to do things to protect themselves so that there won't have theft of, of some of our most advanced research. But if we do that and cut ourselves off from the very brightest scholars right now, and so much of the research is being done by top Chinese scholars, and we're benefiting from that much more than China is, this will hurt us. So the question really is, how do we compete and how are we smart about the way we compete? And so, so often I'll have someone in Washington say, I don't like the fact that China does this. They're not fair. We, this is wrong. And I'll say often, I agree with you. Okay, so now what are you going to do about it? Well, often the proposal they make hurts us more than it hurts them. And so I, I think we have to not only keep two thoughts in our you know, brain at the same time, how do we avoid disastrous war? And of course, I know there's a big difference between war and some other things, but I look at the, the risks I see that are inevitable with climate change and with cyber terrorism and other areas where there is a real threat. I see those also as being very formidable, daunting challenges that both countries have. There's a shared interest that both countries have because, because disaster in those areas would hurt us all. So the key thing is, as you say, those two ideas, let's avoid the conflict where we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Let's figure out how to work in those areas. And then when we're competing, let's figure out how to compete. And let me tell you, we're not going to decouple from China. So there's going to be great opportunities. It's going to be impossible to decouple economically. So there's going to be great opportunities in certain areas to create jobs here and prosperity in America as a result of, the, of, of, our, of our trade with China. So comment about that. And, uh, and, and then uh, any more, I want you to have the last thoughts here. Any concluding comments about the way forward? Uh, you know, how effective have we been as U.S. policy been in dealing with this Chinese challenge? And, and what advice uh, do you have for our government going forward? How do we hold those two thoughts, you know, looking at the one hand, the adversary, when, 
and, and also, you know, adversary and a competitor, but also, uh, you know, we've got some real shared interests. Well, again, if I had a good answer, uh, uh, I would uh, have written it down. I've been struggling with this very hard, as I know you have, and I think you've been casting a lot of light on this. I've liked very much the reports from your institute, including the one recently, reminding us how much of the brain power and manpower in many of our industries, like AI, happens to be Chinese. So uh, one of the great uh, capabilities of the US is we can recruit talent from all over the world. Every, every one of the 7.7 .7 billion people on this earth can come to America and realize his or her dreams and contribute. Uh, and so I think a sensible policy that has a sensible country and a sensible uh, ability to attract people through H-1B visas, not cutting them off as President Trump's administration did recently, or not trying to discourage such immigrants, or not trying to prevent these folks from being part of universities, is great for us. It turns out that 25%, uh, I think I got this from your report, 25% of all the papers in AI have one Chinese author. Uh, from another source, I know that about half of the people who man most of the laboratories in the stem cells in the major universities are foreign students. And more than half of those are Chinese. So that's what's advancing our medical work, our scientific work, our technical work. You say, on the other hand, we have to be cautious about where some of those individuals are engaged in illegal and improper behavior, and universities have been lax about enforcing that. That's something that should change. So I, I agree with that, that whole big picture. I think that, that for most of us, Holding two contradictory ideas in our head at the same time is too painful and too hard. If we can just, and in Washington, you see this all the time. Look, be clear to me, is this black or white? I need to know, black or white? And if you, if you can only live in black or white world, I'd say, unfortunately, shame on you, you're gonna miss most of what's colorful in the world, most of what's wonderful in the world. Uh, it's more complicated than black and white. So I don't think we can, it would be nice or clear, clarify to say, okay, let's just be clear. China's the enemy, let's organize against China. And when we successfully defeat it, then we can move on to the next problem. I don't think that's a realistic option. China is simultaneously our adversary and competitor and will be ruthlessly so, and our inescapable partner, and will be inescapably so. So how to manage that, you know, simultaneously? Well, in the business world, you probably can help with this better than I can. I've been exploring it. So if you look at Apple and Samsung, a very good example. I mean, one of the most, you know, two of the most dynamic companies in the world one of the most, the, the most valuable company in America now. 
So Apple and Samsung are ruthless competitors selling smartphones. Actually, Samsung has beat them out over the last several years. But who is Apple's main supplier of components for its smartphones? Samsung. So if you ask Tim Cook, well, wait a minute, you can't have be dependent of a supplier on the guy who's your principal competitor. How do you do that? He would say, that's called life. Life is complicated. <laughs> uh, so I would think we need diplomats who might take some lessons from that about the fact that complexity and managing complexity is called life. Yes, Graham, it, it's interesting because I made the comment earlier that, you know, rather than the economic linkages mitigating the security conflict, the security had come over blurred and, and come into the economic realm. And as you see national security types dealing with economic issues, they militarize them, right? Right. So they militarize them. And if you grow up in, you know, the, the, in, the, in the military, you don't, there's winners or there's, there's losers. There, there, there's not a lot of win-win, right? Right. And, and so you either win or you lose. And when you take that into the economic arena, in today's world, when you look at how prevalent all the new technologies are and all the ones with dual uses and are baked into almost everything we do, and increasingly are going to be a, a part of global trade and investment, we're going to need to be very careful how we fashion these rules. So as I look ahead, and we, we clearly need a new framework for U.S.-China relations, and that's going to reflect the evolving interests and of, of each country. And I think China is going to have to recognize that some of the behaviors they got away with when they were a $1 trillion economy aren't going to be acceptable. The United States or the rest of the world when they're a $13 trillion economy, they still okay. can't act like they're a developing nation and think they're going to get away with some of the behaviors. And the U.S. has got to recognize the point that you made, that they're a 13, that they're a huge economy, they're an important part of the economic order in the world, and we can't just dictate to them. So that makes the relationship very complicated. But I think what gives me hope is coming back to what you said. You know, this is international order is too big to fail. That's the way I've always said it, because you said it much more bluntly so people can understand it. We can't afford to destroy each other. But even if we were stopped short of destroying each other, we could still make the world a very difficult place if we can't find some common ground. So I just would say in closing here, as we work and each country works to find a framework for a new framework that works for the U.S. and China in, in, in this century, I'm going to be looking very carefully at anything you write or you say, because you've been thinking about this as long as anybody I know, and you are a terrific thinker with practical ideas. So often people will say, well, so-and-so is an academic. They write books and papers. You know, you are a doer. So your papers are rooted in solving practical problems. And so I'm gonna look very carefully at everything you write going forward. So thank you very much for being with us today. 
Thank you so much. A very interesting conversation. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.